0: Y'all, I am glad you are watching this video because we have an amazing testimony from Stephen Shrewsbury. So hear about his journey to Jesus through all kinds of twists and turns. It's going to be a great conversation. All right, so we can go ahead and welcome Stephen Shrewsbury. <laughs> um, man, and the, he's. A, <laughs> you know they have driven all the way from Nacogdoches, and that is not a close drive um, for those of y'all that aren't from Texas, but thank you so much for coming. You are
1: welcome. Man. It's taken about a year and yes. more than a year we've to get it. we've been here, at
0: it for a while, yeah, <laughs> we finally trying. got it. Yep.
1: Um,
0: so just the story of how this came to be, okay. so Karen Ivy um, texted me almost two years ago now, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, so her cousin actually goes to the same church as the Shrewsbury's, and There's a podcast that comes out of this church, and they do a really cool stuff. And she listened to an episode that Stephen was on, and she said, you have to listen to this. And I said, okay. And I was like, you're right. We have to have Stephen come and join us for midweek. And so um, we finally figured out a way for him to get here. And, man, we were just so excited that you're here. I'm glad
1: to be here. Yeah. Thank you for welcoming me. Yeah.
0: It's been great. We're so excited. Um, And so all of that to say, we – Part of this is that we're living out the, the command that we get from Easter and then at Pentecost, right, to go and make disciples. And part of that is telling your testimony. And like I said, um, we want to be able to t- tell our testimonies, but also it is good and it is right and it is biblical to, to be encouraged by each other's testimonies, right? And so um, Stephen has a really, really cool one. And we've been joking that you're the most interesting man in the world, <laughs> <laughs> that you should be the one in the commercials. But um, anyway, so, man. Thank you for coming. And tell us a little bit about just what you do now. I know you're at SFA. Okay. Um,
1: just I am uh, currently an associate uh, professor of legal studies at SFA. I've been doing that for six years. I was just promoted uh, just a few weeks nice. ago. And um, this is my second career. I was a Air Force officer for 30 years. I uh, retired as a colonel. We were living in England at that time. I spent um, The last six assignments, we were as a family overseas uh, for six straight assignments living in various uh, countries around the world. Um, We were Greece and Tokyo and Germany and Guam and Hawaii and England, and uh, our children uh, never really lived in the United States. They'd only visited a couple of places in their lives until they uh, moved here Uh, in 2017 we came. Yeah. uh to take this mm-hmm. um job at this university I'd never heard of. Yeah. Um yeah. I have <laughs> yeah, no con- Chase, We it? have no connection to Texas. My wife yeah. is a Floridian and I'm a Coloradan and uh we met in the Air Force years ago and uh God opened this door and yeah. and here we are. Yeah, that's
0: awesome. Um and so y'all have probably seen the I've written just a little post about this before so um you have such an interesting story, first of all, because you've traveled so much, you've lived in so many places, you have this amazing Air Force career, but also you have a really unique experience when it comes to faith and coming to Christianity and your journey there. And so um, we can just start from the beginning, <laughs> and okay. I, want, I want them to be able to hear your story, but um, tell us a little bit about your childhood, what your family was like, and how did religion play a part in that?
1: Okay. Well, I will tell you, I have an extremely unusual background, and I could spend a lot of time. It's so unusual, I could spend far more time than you want to listen to me, to, to tell you about this background. I'm the oldest of seven children, um, and uh, I was an, my mother was unwed when I was born, and uh, I was about six months old, and she ended up marrying a friend of hers. Um, that went to high school with her, and he was a young man who came from a fundamentalist Mormon family. And fundamentalism in uh, in the Mormon culture, what fundamentalism means is an embrace of polygamy, and that's uh, and a rejection of the of the main. Um, LDS church okay. as being the true church and then the embrace of some individual who is the the true prophet also they ca- in Mormon lingo they call that person the one mighty and strong
0: okay so um, i didn't realize that was totally separate from the greater lds
1: yes community. fundamentalism okay, no there's okay. there, are, there are dozens and dozens okay. of fundamentalist groups in Mormonism that are all separate but all bound together by a common embrace of the command to practice polygamy and so uh, my father was uh, from was he had two brothers at that time both of them were married to uh, multiple women and my father uh was as well. I did not learn this until a little bit later in my life that he had married uh, a woman while he was also married to my mother. Wow. This was about uh, the time I was in kindergarten, first, second grade, a very young child. And, um, and so we uh, as we were growing up, fundamentalism is not popular in the main LDS church. And so What would happen is individuals who lead fundamentalist groups, they go out and they start colonies or groups, Mm -hmm. right? You've heard of the FLDS, perhaps, the group Mm -hmm. that Warren Warren Jeffs and his group that was down on the Arizona border. Mm -hmm. That's just one example of a fundamentalist group. The group that my dad belonged to was a fundamentalist group uh, called, um, the, the actual fundamentalist group was called Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of God, or something like that. And the um, place that the colony or the area that people lived was actually in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. uh, At a place called Colonial LeBaron, which still exists. It's about 80 or 90 miles south of El Paso, south of Juarez. And uh, it was a polygamy colony. And so we moved down there when I was two, yeah. and I have one brother that was born there at, during that trip, and we, um, following a, a few journeys around, my dad put us in, he would, tried logging, uh, we were living in a logging camp, we lived in the woods in Tumwater, Washington, um, and he just moved us around. eventually we moved back to the colony, this was when I was nine, and uh, my youngest brother was born down there. I'm the oldest of seven, as I I may have mentioned. And uh, at that time, violence uh, began to foment within that group. Mm -hmm. And that's because these groups, uh, the group was led by an individual called uh, Joel LeBaron. And LeBaron is a a famous name, infamous name in Utah culture, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because uh, the middle brother, Ervil, was a serial killer. And and uh, he actually he died in prison, a couple of decades in the late nineteen seventies, wow. and he had um, he was the number two in command okay. of the polygamy colony, and he became in conflict with the older brother who okay. was Joel. Yeah. My father became very scared about what was going to happen, and yeah. so he pulled us out of that, wow. and he uh, brought us in the middle of the night, basically over the border. Oh my he brought my uh, my. Brothers who did not have um, passports. Yeah. He he built my. They built a trailer. He put a false wall in the trailer, wow. and put my mother, who was breastfeeding my youngest brother, behind the false wall. And that's how we oh my got gosh. my brother through the U.S. border. Oh my goodness! And that uh, was our journey up to at that point Denver. Oh my! Did goodness. I tell you this could go all night?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you
1: you got to be careful what you ask for. So,
0: man. Uh, so are those communities normally? Pretty insulated and pretty separated from the rest of
1: very much society. So. Okay. Extremely okay. insulated. If you had to get
0: out in that way, that sounds
1: okay. It's very hard to leave. Um, yeah. It's very hard to leave cults, right. and and fundamentalism is very much of a, a cultish type behavior. Yeah. Um, and uh, it led by you know cult uh, cult behavior. There's some characteristics of it. Usually, right. there's a strong personality that leads that, and, yeah. and there's a certain language that's developed, mm-hmm. and there's this idea that everyone else is wrong and you're right, yeah. and you can't even be exposed to other ideas, and that creates this very insular yeah. sort of attitude within within yeah. um, cults, and polygamy yeah. groups are very much like that. Yeah.
0: So it's kind of all happening in a vacuum where you don't have that outside influence to kind of test Things against, there was no right.
1: outside influence. Yeah. There was no church life when I was growing up. I never went to an LDS ward. They call them wards. Yeah. That's the uh-huh. ward house. We, we never went. I don't have any memory of ever doing that. Wow. Um, what my uh, father and brothers would do is they would sit us around in a big circle on Sunday, and they would talk about fundamentalism, and that was what I recall church was yeah. uh, as a young child.
0: Yeah, wow. You know. Okay, so you were nine, you said, when you... When y'all left ten, ten. okay. Ten. When you left that, and then you you get to Denver, right? Um, and so,
1: how,
0: how does the, the story continue once you get to, to Denver?
1: My father had because he would he had become uh, nervous about the this brewing feud between the two LeBaron brothers. Right. So he had moved to Denver because he had a half brother who was also a LeBaron. Okay. And his half brother had become involved in this group called Scientology, uh-huh. and so my brother, uh, my uh, father, became a Scientologist. He basically uh-huh. said, "This is this is what I really want to do," yeah. and so he brought us up to Denver, and that started the uh, journey of Scientology for for me.
0: So, so your dad is kind of taking you on this journey um, mm-hmm. through these really diverse religious experiences. That mm-hmm. it's not until after the fact that you're realizing, you know. This is, this is different, but um, tell us a little bit about Scientology. What, it, what is the goal, or what do they teach? What is that experience like in Scientology?
1: You know, it's a very odd, and it's also, it's, personally I consider Scientology to be the cult of all cults, okay. mainly because it, it checks all the boxes of cult behavior. Yeah. Um, and I've studied cults quite extensively because of my involvement in them, And this one was particularly um, dangerous in in some significant ways. But essentially, L. Ron Hubbard had had created this idea Mm -hmm. in the 1930s. He was a a science fiction writer, not a very good one. He did publish quite a few books, Mm -hmm. not great books, but um, he had developed uh, this idea that uh, in history we had all come we were all billions of years old Mm -hmm. and we had lived many many lives Scientology is reincarnation religion we had lived many many lives um, thousands and thousands of lives over billions and billions of years and that over this time period bad things happened to us Mm -hmm. physically mentally and we carried this baggage from life to life to life Mm -hmm. this was the idea and you would carry this baggage and because of this you were weighed down and you had to be made clear of this baggage. That was the goal of Scientology mm-hmm. was to create what, what Scientology would call making you clear. Okay. And making you clear would involve this series of processes involving training, uh, book learning, and also this process called auditing. Okay. And so at age a at age eleven, mm-hmm. I quit school. I was supposed to be in fifth grade. I quit school I never attended fifth grade and I went to work at the Scientology mission in Denver full-time wow. you know, I got on the bus every morning, went down worked full- time for this wow. for the mission did some training mm-hmm. eventually and I was a type of kid that liked being around adults. So I thought yeah. I was pretty cool yeah and um, eventually I was training adults yeah. uh, at that age, which sounds. Even as I think back, I'm going, that's ridiculous. But for these adults, I wasn't a child. I was billions of years old. Huh. I was just in a child's body. So that, and there was, an, accept, there was yeah. an acceptance of that. The, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a um, couple of years later, I skipped another. I, I basically got done. I did attend sixth grade, mm-hmm. finished sixth grade, and I, I said, OK, I want to go and do something else. And I was sent to LA. Okay. And I went to LA for several months. I lived at the, uh, what is Scientology would call the Celebrity Center, still exists in Hollywood. It's where all the um, celebrities go okay. Tom Cruise and all those guys. That's, yeah. that's where they go to train okay. in Scientology. Now, Cruise was not a Scientologist back then. John Travolta was, Dion Warwick oh, wow. was. These were the Scientologists I remember from the 1970s. Yeah. Okay. And so I was down in L.A. and I was training to be a Dianetics auditor. Dianetics was the branch of Scientology that was supposed to cure you of all your physical ailments, not your mental ones, but your okay. physical ailments. So they have that kind of right. there
0: sections was, off. Okay. That's correct.
1: Interesting. Okay. And auditing... Basically involved taking um, a device called an E-meter, electrometer, and the device was you. You, the person, uh, the 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 client would uh, oddity would hold a pair of cans, literally, and the cans would be hooked essentially to a potentiometer connected to a needle, and the needle would actually measure the electromagnetic resistance of the human being, and it and it act it. It does, in fact, do that. Um, And using that, the Dianetics technique was to try to get people to remember their so-called past lives and then go back and back. In other words, if you had a knee problem Mm -hmm. and you wanted to get rid of your knee problem, then you need to go and figure out what caused your knee problem. And the way to do that was you would go back and back and back into life after life after life And you would find some life that, oh yeah, I was on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I remember I got in this, I fell off this cliff and broke my leg and that's what caused my knee problem.
0: So they're kind of creating this, what it sounds like to be a manipulative environment where they're creating. It's
1: extremely manipulative. They're leading you to create memories. Yeah. One thing I can tell you from all these experiences that people will (sighs) believe anything. They really will. And I've seen several people claim that they were Jesus in past lives when I was a Scientologist um, and quite a few other things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Okay. And I know that y'all probably already have a million questions each. And I forgot to say this at the beginning. But um, we're going to use Slido again tonight. So, same as always, slido.com. And the code is M W I T C. If Stephen is kind enough to answer a few questions you, at the you end. You can ask me anything. We might not be able to get through all of it because we'll be here for a long time. But um, if you want to submit questions that way, uh, we can do that um, at the end. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was coming out of the speaker. <laughs> I didn't know what was happening. Um,
1: that was the background music for the story. Yeah, yeah, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, this next part. <laughs> um, okay, so that's those are two obviously very different, very mm. extreme religious circumstances to be in. Um, so would you call those experiences traumatic in your, in your understanding? It's
1: hard to, it, it's hard not to say that, it's hard to say that they were not traumatic. Yeah. Um, it was just all I knew, mm-hmm. right? right? When I was uh, uh, in a polygamy colony, all I knew is everybody had multiple wives. Right. This was the way it was. And uh, when I left that, and I was in Scientology, my dad believed it. My mom was a Scientologist, too. They both worked full-time for Scientology for several years um, for the organization. It was just part of our life. I, uh, three of my brothers became Scientologists after me. Um, one of my brothers joined what was, what is called the C Org. Sea Org is a branch of Scientology in which young people are taken. Essentially, it's a, it's almost like slave labor. Mm. They're taken, and they literally sign a oh. one-billion-year contract. Oh, my gosh. And literally, on paper, a one-billion-year contract to work for wow. the Sea Organization. Yeah. And it's essentially um, almost like a slave labor yeah. type uh, situation. Oh my, my brother was sent to... New York City, to okay. uh, live in Times Square. Back then, Times Square wasn't this cool, fancy, lovely thing you see now. Back then, it was called Hell's Kitchen. Okay, that was yeah. the area of New York City at that time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, my brother, this particular brother, his name's Logan, is quite damaged mm, yeah. uh, because of this experience. Yeah.
0: So how long were you in the Scientology? Do you call it Scientology Church, I guess, or organization? It's um, the Church of Scientology. Church of Scientology. Mm-hmm. How, how long were you in that?
1: From age 10 until I was almost 16. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and you didn't go to school for all of that time? You no, were I went to,
1: um, I went, I did not go to 8th grade, I did not go to 5th grade, I did not go to most of 7th grade. Wow, okay. As, so those those years um, yeah. I missed.
0: Yeah, okay, and right at the time, those things don't feel like a trauma, that just feels like life, right? Because you're... Yeah. Well the, the real it, the
1: the trauma that actually started me out of mm-hmm. Scientology was I was in LA mm-hmm. and I wanted to stay in LA. Yeah. I mean I was like keep me in LA I'll just keep a, I'll, I'll just keep training and be a Scientologist. Mm-hmm. But the Denver um, we call them missions mm-hmm. that's the local organization of Scientology. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to come back and become an auditor. Okay. Audit for them. And mm-hmm. so I came back and I was the youngest auditor in Scientology wow. history, still oh to this gosh. day, I believe. Oh my gosh. Um, and uh, so I started auditing yeah. and I was working full time. And I had been back just a few months, and my parents sat us all down and said, uh, in a circle, or, and they said, all seven of us at that time, and they said, We're getting a divorce, who do you want to live with? Oh my goodness. And so the three oldest sons went with my father. Mm-hmm. And the four youngest went with my mother, and that was the that was far more traumatic than what I ever considered Scientology or polygamy to be for me.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then, at that point, you leave Scientology. But how does that kind of come about for you? How do you?
1: I was living in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with my father, and we had been. I had gone. I did go to ninth grade, but when I got out of school, we would eat. Dinner, and basically we would get in the car and we would, we would commute up to Denver. And that's not a small trip, by the way. Denver yeah, is about it. 70 miles, 60, 70 miles. Yeah. And we would go to Denver and actually uh, work in the Scientology mission in the evening. It was uh, pretty exhausting. Yeah. Um, and I just became progressively more unhappy, mm-hmm. desperately unhappy. Yeah. Um, and so my avenue for escape became education. Mm-hmm education become that that was my way to get out of it and so I said I'm going to do that and so I did very very well when I was in the ninth grade Um, and when I graduated that back then we called it junior high school ninth grade and and I said I'm done and I I decided to leave uh, my father Mm -hmm. he was still a practicing Scientologist my mother had left Scientology Uh Um, and she was living up in Denver, and I said, I'm going to go live with her. So I moved up to Denver, and that started my anti religion period of my life. Yeah. Um, I grew my yeah. hair very long <laughs> down here. I was uh, what we called a freak in the 1970s. You were in the group called The Freak. You were a freak group. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the people that sat in the back of the high school and smoked cigarettes and yeah. traded pot and those kinds of things. <laughs> Although I, I never did. <laughs> drugs because yeah. I couldn't stand the smell of it, yeah. frankly. That's yeah. the truth. Yeah, um, And yeah. so that was my, I hate religion. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I didn't even really know it. Believe me, none of this. I have no idea what Christianity is at this time in my life. Yeah. No, no idea at all.
0: Yeah, because your mm. experience with religion up to that point had been manipulation and conflict, right? And all of these things that like you said, just led you to this really unhappy place. So I would think in my mind, well, religion, bah, that's, not worth, that's not worth anything.
1: Right? I don't be... remember giving religion a second thought yeah. after I left uh, yeah. Scientology. It, it didn't cross my mind for years, yeah. quite, a, quite a lot, yeah. quite a few years.
0: So how did you begin to, once you left, um, how did you begin to kind of heal or, or process some of those things? What did that time in life look like?
1: Well, it was really a matter of we were desperately a uh, poverty-stricken family. And so I education, again, that was my escape. And I decided I wanted to be a professional pilot. Wow. And so I uh, signed up for a university called the Metropolitan State University, now called Metropolitan State University in Denver. They had a professional pilot program. And I started to train to be a pilot yeah. um, and uh, couldn't afford it. Ended up graduating with a degree in aviation management, thinking I would get a job working for an airport or for an airline. Yeah. This was in the 1980s. Extremely difficult to get an aviation job at that time. Very easy right now, by the way, but very, very difficult then. Okay. Um, and so I graduated, and for two years, I could not get a decent job. Mm-hmm. I mean, this getting a job, I, I am... I think we're blessed right now with mm-hmm. our young people graduating yeah. and being able to get work as yeah. easy uh, as they can. It was not that way yeah. uh, in the 1980s, and that's uh, one day I said I've got to get, I've got to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working part time. I was, del- you know, two years college graduate. I was delivering pizza. Yeah. I was uh, selling th- uh, televisions. Yeah. Uh, I was an usher for the Denver Symphony Orchestra and yeah. the Denver Center Theater. I was doing all these things, but I was not a professional. Yeah. And uh, I just saw an ad in the newspaper from the Navy mm-hmm. and they said, hey, come be a supply officer and some other jobs. And I said, "I okay. And I went down and took a test wow. and I was on my way to join the Navy and I saw another poster and it was an Air Force poster and had all these other jobs. And I didn't know the Air Force did anything but hire pilots, engineers, yeah. and navigators. I had no idea there were any other jobs. Yeah. And uh, so I tested for the Air Force right. and uh, decided to get out of Denver. Yeah. And that's how I ended up leaving.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that starts your Air Force
1: career right, right, from there. Right, Okay, And Man. it started right here in San Antonio. Oh, So wow. I came down to San Antonio to officer training school.
0: Oh, how funny.
1: Okay. And that was in uh, 87, early 87. Okay. I was 25 years old at that wow. time. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I know I'm totally going out of order here. So talk to us a little bit about your Air Force career kind of path. So you start training here in San Antonio. Um, and then it sounds like you've made quite the, the world tour of, of mm-hmm. moving around and all those kinds of things. So how did that journey look for you?
1: I started I was offered a job uh, to train as a uh, what we, what we call a weapons controller and a weapons controller is a individual who basically controls fighter and bomber aircraft wow. and um, helps them gain situational awareness of where targets are oh, wow. either other aircraft to shoot down or to be aware of or uh, ground targets okay. and so I was stationed in Panama City, Florida. There's a base there called Tyndall Air Force Base, mm-hmm. and I started a wonderful job uh, working for a unit there in which we did test and evaluation of air-to-air missiles. Okay. That was my job there, okay. and uh, I was as happy as somebody who doesn't know the Lord can be. You really, That's a good way to say uh, that, there's yeah. a there's a there's a step when you go through that door. It's an amazing. You don't even know you're unhappy until you go through that door. But I was doing pretty well and and pretty happy about it. And I'd been there a couple of years, and uh, I had run across this young lady right over here. Yes, and now in the officer's club, my wife Lori over here. (laughs) She was also an Air Force officer, and um, she was a lieutenant at the time, and I was a young captain. And I had just talked with her briefly at, a, at, at the officer's club one one evening. And uh, I also worked uh, with her roommate, unbeknownst to me. Her roommate was somebody I worked with, another lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And uh, out of the blue, one day I received a phone call mm-hmm. uh, from this roommate. Her name's Michelle. And she said, you know, I think if you asked my roommate Lori out, she'd probably say yes.
0: <laughs> Did you orchestrate yeah. that? Maybe. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, she, so, I've had friends that say, hey, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: And so I, I called, and, and, uh, and she said yes. And so we, we started uh, to date. This was right before I turned 30 years old. I'm 29. And uh, during this summer, this was in the summer, mm-hmm. and um, before I had actually met Lori, something was happening to me. Mm-hmm. I was desperately unhappy. I was almost 30, I had gone through several relationships, none of them went well, I really wanted to get married, mm-hmm. and nothing was going right, mm-hmm. and I just said, I've got to do what everybody who's been a Scientologist does, which is you go to the self-help section of your bookstore and you figure out how to do it, oh my God. because it's all about self-help, okay. and I went into a bookstore in Panama City, I saw this book called The Road Less Traveled, um, and this book um, was by a guy named Scott Peck, yeah. and uh, I picked the book up, and the reason I picked it up was because I needed to learn about love. Like, the love thing, right? <laughs> and and there, and a third of the the book was split into three sections, and there was one section called love, and I said, that's the book I want to get, and so I bought this book. I went home, I started to read the book, and It was interesting. And it was telling me, I don't even remember a lot about the book. I just know that it was interesting enough that I went past the love section. And eventually I got to that last section of the book. And that last section of the book, I believe, was grace. I think that was on grade. I didn't know what that was. And I was reading that, and I was just feeling something is. there's got to be something better. there's got to be something else out there. Um, and so that that in my mind, in my view, is the whole was the Holy Spirit really reaching out and starting to work on me yeah. um, and then it was not just a few weeks later that that I met uh, Lorian I didn't date church girls, and and Lori was a church girl. She's a born and raised. Oh, okay. And uh, and uh, that was an interesting journey yeah. because I didn't know what I didn't know, and so I said, "Let's go try out all. The, let's go try some churches out." Wow. And so um, she was kind enough to uh, being a Baptist girl. She was kind enough to go with me to the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist <laughs> Church and. I even tried to take her to a a Mormon church. Mm -hmm. That's how uneducated I was about uh, Christianity. And um, we, one Sunday, went over to the ward in Panama City Mm -hmm. on a Sunday morning. This
0: is like the LDS proper This is the LDS proper church, right.
1: Which is totally different from what you grew up in. I didn't know what the difference was. And uh, we went there, and the door was locked. And that's because they didn't have service uh, on that particular day. And I think the Lord closed that door.
0: Yeah, yeah. for True, sure, yeah. He
1: just closed yeah. that door, yeah. and so <laughs> literally, yeah, quite literally. Yeah. Um, wow. And so, um, eventually, we started to attend a Baptist church that was near my apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, no Sunday school, just going to service. Yeah. And uh, Lori and I continued to date. I was at that time been at, I had been a controller for five years. Lori is also a controller. She was in the, uh, air defense. She worked in. Directing fighters out to uh, anti-drug operations, mm-hmm. things like that, and um, we were dating seriously. And I had I had gone to graduate school at Florida State University, mm-hmm. part time for three years. I got a graduate degree in business, wow. thinking I would leave the Air Force. Well, I was having so much fun, I didn't yeah. want to leave. And the Air Force had a law program. Mm-hmm. I tried to get into that law program three straight years. And on the third and last year of eligibility, I was accepted to um, uh, be allowed to go to law school. And so that was going to happen fairly quickly, and I needed a law school that I wanted to go to a good law school, and I wanted a law school that maybe I could be with her, and she needed to be near a base where she could work at a base and I could be at the law school. And the University of Utah actually fit that bill. Oh, my goodness. And so... um, we were engaged, and um, at this time, still attending church—not a not a not a saved individual. Yeah. Um, attending church, curious, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, over the last, this was in April, May. I'm leaving in August. Mm-hmm. I'm out. I'm going to Utah, and um, we are supposed to get married in the end of May, mm-hmm. and April comes along. and And I start to change. Something starts to happen where I'm really being affected by the Holy Spirit now. Mm -hmm. And so I call it my my pew gripping time (laughs) during the invitation. I'm gripping the back of the pew. And I didn't even know I was doing this. Lori's the one that told me about this later. (laughs) I was gripping the pew for for several weeks. Uh, And in early May of that year... The preaching was on the woman with the bleeding issue. Mm. Um, and that just, that was it. That just touched yeah. me. And I, I, just, I just remember saying, that's it. And I, I surrender. I let go. It was yeah. like, I, I'm letting go. Oh my and I, it was a classic old style Baptist invitation. Yeah. And I went forward. Wow. I was Baptist, ba- baptized, I think, 4th of July. Oh You're cool. the 4th of July. <laughs> I think it was the 4th of July. That's cool. 4th yeah. of July that year.
0: Awesome. Mm-hmm. The fact that you had any... Ability to even be curious about Christianity, I would think. After your experience with, Mormon, with the fundamentalist Mormon Church and then Scientology, like you said, you know, I would I would have wanted to throw away religion, completely for so long. And you know, that was, I guess, a decent stint of time where you had not interacted with religion. But how did you, how did you even be able to open yourself up to a new religious experience or community? That would be so I, think,
1: I think God was preparing me yeah. in, in, through my very odd background mm-hmm. to look at life a different way and mm-hmm. to be able to relate after I became a believer to a lot of people who come from backgrounds that yeah. it may not be Scientology, mm-hmm. but there are plenty of other odd um, yeah. belief systems out there, and I really can truly yeah. relate to those because I've lived them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so um, yeah. it wasn't so much a resistance. It was just I wanted something to pull mm-hmm. me out of misery. Yeah. It, really, it was just I need to not be miserable. Yeah. Even though I wasn't miserable, mm-hmm. I was miserable. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. it was just not fun anymore to live the way I was living.
0: Yeah. And what a amazing thing that even being able to be a little bit curious about this Christian faith, you can kind of... You know, this journey is just so amazing that y'all were able to go along that, that journey together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, skipping forward a little bit, um, so you've, so you had that experience of, of conversion. Mm-hmm. And how old were you at, at that point?
1: 30. 30. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Um, and then you continued on in your Air Force career. Right. I moved and- to
1: Salt Lake City. I began law school. I moved in with my aunt and uh, my aunt, my mom's sister, a, a mainstream LDS individual oh, wow. her and I had quite a few conversations about this Christianity thing that I was kind of involved in at that time. Um, and I started law school and the Air Force finally allowed Lori to come and join me mm-hmm. I think in December of that okay. year so she come came and joined me and we ended up uh, buying a tiny little house, 73,000 bucks folks. <laughs> Houses, houses were cheaper in those days. We
0: can only drink. <laughs> and
1: uh, we bought a little house um, that was halfway between Hill Air Force Base uh-huh. and the uh, main, downtown Salt Lake, which was where my law school was. Okay. And so I went to law school. I worked part-time for the Air Force the entire time in their legal okay. uh, offices. Okay. And um, at the end of law school, I graduated, and then they kept me on. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Utah. At a Baptist church for six years, mm-hmm. when there were really no Baptists in Utah, yeah. they were almost non-existent. In fact, there were almost no Evangelical Christians in Utah at yeah. all until that uh, yeah. until that time frame. Yeah. So we wow. we were in a little church of about seventy, wow. been around uh, for a number of decades. When we left, the church had grown to about four hundred. Wow. The Southern Baptist Convention it had one of their convention outreach mm. years, was in Salt Lake City when we were there. Wow. It was the year, year So huh. it would have been... Yeah, that's so nine interesting. Years. Yeah. Okay. Huh. And um, so I learned a lot yeah. about Mormonism. Huh. Yeah. Living in Salt Lake, I had lots of Mormon family, and I studied Mormonism, and I actually learned what it was then.
0: And was that really stark from your experience in the fundamentalists? Completely. And so that's... Because we think of that as oh, it's this little branch off of the funda- of that proper LDS church, but that's just a totally my new memory of
1: fundamentalism is polygamy. Yeah, I have no memory of any doctrine. Yeah, yeah, of any doctrine belief things. systems. It's polygamy and follow the prophet. Yeah, and but so Mormonism whole... is far more than that. Right. Yes, Mormonism as a doctrine. I mean, that's a you could teach a whole course on that. But yeah. It's far different than Christianity, I can right. tell you that. Yeah. So I learned, I had to learn, and, and it became something I became very interested in learning about Mormonism and then about uh, quasi-Christian religions, mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses, and other groups, and that became a way to to become more intimately familiar with the Bible the word yeah. because you had to, you had to study that along yeah. with it, and so that was yeah. part of my growing process
0: yeah that's amazing um, and since then you' all have had children right mm-hmm. and you've um, and one of these things that as I was thinking about your journey, especially as your father was kind of taking you on this religious journey for, through a few different things um now how do you disciple your kids in the faith, especially having this unique experience that you have. Um, how's, how's your experience informed the way that you disciple your kids? Um, I,
1: I, I don't know that it's a whole lot different than the way most of you are discipling if you have children that you've discipled your kids. Mm-hmm. It's really um, helping them to uh, understand by setting an example, yeah. right? So it's a setting of examples of are you... Growing? Are you praying? Are you attending church? And are you bringing your kids along with you and growing them up in that way? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so we would move from place. After Utah, we never lived anywhere more than three years. That was most of the time. It was wow. two years, two years, two years, three years, two years, that kind of thing. And uh,
0: So they grew up completely overseas. Right.
1: Our, our daughter, uh, who is 21 now, she was seven months old when we... I think seven months old when we moved okay. to Athens. Wow. Okay. And then after that, it was overseas. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So that's a unique discipleship experience in and of itself, right? Because you're not kind of planted in this one place. You're- and
1: we, we would... As we went from country to country, you would always look for the, what we called the international church. Mm. And you could always find an international church. And normally the international church would be evangelical, would always be evangelical. Yeah. And inevitably the pastor or the leader of that church would have a Baptist background. It was very, very common. You see that a lot with the non-denominational churches yeah. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, called non-denominational, yeah. but still very Baptisty, yeah. if you uh-huh. will, and evangelical. And so we went from international church to international church, and we were exposed to people from many, many scores of nations over that time frame. Um, People would attend those groups from, or attend our church that were from other denominations. We had lots of Catholics that attended. Our church in Athens, um, we had had Pentecostals Mm -hmm. that would attend. Because it's an international community, and there were there weren't evangelical churches in a lot of these places, mm-hmm. and so we would come together that yeah. way.
0: And that's what's a, that's a cool kind of ecumenical experience too to be able mm-hmm. to have, you know, that's if that's kind of their only option for what fits their their kind of doctrine for for church. And man, that, that's a diverse mm-hmm. congregation yes. to be able to come together. That's amazing, um, and so. Okay, so continuing on. Sorry, I know we're we're going out of order. This is just such an interesting story. Um, so you entered this kind of study of law, um, and how did and now you're a professor at SFA teaching, teaching in the subject. How did that? What did that journey look like? And what specifics when it comes to law? Um, what did you study? What do you teach now? Um, how did I practiced.
1: Almost every area of law I've practiced, because that's the way the Air Force was. So I was a prosecutor for for a number of years, and I was a district attorney equivalent for Mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. I did that. I practiced in contracts, environmental law, lots of areas of law. Um, And then uh, the Air Force, always, the Air Force is a great organization, because they decided they would allow me to go to school again, and they would pay me to go to school and they paid me to go to school for a year uh, at the University of Virginia mm-hmm. at the Army uh, Legal Center, yeah. the Army Law School at UVA, and I uh, got a Master of Law degree. Oh, yes,
0: yeah, we have a, another University of Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh,
1: great place <laughs> yeah. to go to school. And yeah. uh, I was there when 9-11 happened and wow. uh, graduated um, that in 2002. And uh, with a with an LLM in wow. um, international law, okay. and so okay. I really wanted to go overseas, and I asked mm-hmm. the I asked the personnel people in Washington uh, to send me to an embassy if at all possible, yeah. and there wasn't anything open, okay. um, and so I thought I was going to uh, we were going to go to uh, Washington, mm-hmm. and out of the blue, uh, I received a phone call saying that there was a short notice opening in Athens, Greece, because the uh, JAG, I was, that's what we call lawyers in the military, JAGs, uh, he wanted out, and that's Mm. because there was a terrorist group operating in Athens at the time called N-17. And N-17 had killed a number of American service people, and they had just assassinated a British uh, brigadier general in 2001, right in the middle of Athens. And so it was a very dangerous place, but I said I wanted it. Yeah. And so I went through a series of training courses, anti-terrorism trainings, things wow. like that. And uh, and uh, I took uh, Lori and our infant daughter, and oh off goodness. we went wow. to this new world. Oh and so that started my diplomacy mm-hmm. part of my career, in yeah. which I was doing a lot of international negotiations yeah. with other countries, um, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, um, Japan, South Korea, yeah. Australia—it oh, it, it, just—it was a lot of different experiences.
0: Yeah, wow, that's amazing, um, and I know I—I know there's we're hitting the highlights here, yeah. um, so, and we'll we'll circle back to some of these things too in a second. But, um, you're so. When did you move to Nakadoches? How long have you been in?
1: So we were in the UK. We lived in a, at a place called Mildenhall Air Base. It was about 30 miles from Cambridge University. A wonder, okay. England is a wonderful country to live in, and we were able to travel it extensively. Yeah. But at 30 years, and I was, I had been a colonel a long time. In fact, I was one of those colonels, I call them old fart colonels. <laughs> I was one of those colonels that the young, that the young colonels would say, I wish that old fart would retire so I could move up. <laughs> um, I'd been a colonel for seven or eight years, but I I loved it and yeah. I stayed till the statutory date there was a stat there's a statute that says as, as a colonel you cannot serve more than 30 years yeah. um, and on the 30th year that day mm-hmm. I uh, I retired wow. uh, and uh, we needed a job and I had begun looking uh, for something and I did not want to go to Washington I had avoided Washington for 30 years I was never assigned to go to Washington yeah. um, except for temporary duty, and yeah. and uh, I thought, you know, how about teaching? And I had done mm-hmm. a lot of executive training in the Air Force, okay. and I had also taught a lot in okay. Scientology. Yeah. I'd been teaching since I was 11.
0: Yeah, you had that gift I from the beginning. I was doing right? a lot
1: of it. I'd just been yeah. doing it a long time. Yeah. And um, so I thought, well, this, this might work. Yeah. So I just started looking for jobs anywhere in the United States mm. that would hire a, 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 a lawyer yeah. vice a Ph.D. yeah. And uh, and out of the blue, I saw this ad on Indeed. I think it was Indeed uh, dot mm-hmm. com, and it was for this university. I, this university, I never <laughs> heard of it. I never even heard. I, I never heard of Nacogdoches, yeah. but they were looking for an international attorney of all things. They were looking yeah. for an international attorney to teach international business wow. law, and um, that was. I was well qualified for yeah. that, so I interviewed with them from England, wow. and then we uh, left England. We moved back to uh, Lori's hometown, essentially, near mm-hmm. there, just as a respite, just to find a place to, do, to sit there with the two kids and figure out where we're going, yeah. and uh, we were asked to come and interview in Nacogdoches. Wow. From, and so we flew from Florida to Nacogdoches and interviewed, and were offered, we were oh. offered the job. That was in 2017. I started teaching there.
0: Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. So and now, so now y'all have been there for a while, and you've kind of settled there. Mm-hmm. Do you do you enjoy Nacogdoches? I know that you've lived all over the world, so it's funny we to rea- land in we Nacogdoches. We really do.
1: It's it's a, yeah. it's a pretty town, yeah. and uh, we have adopted Texas. I'll tell you. There's <laughs> um, well, obviously we're conservatives, and uh, and it's. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay place yeah. to be.
0: Texas. So. It, you know, I didn't plan to stay here my whole life, and then 10 years later,
1: I'm yeah. still here. Yeah, it's Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we <laughs> <laughs> we often think, where else would we go? If we could yeah. go anywhere, would we go? And, and the truth is we've been a lot of places. Yeah. Would we want to live anywhere more than mm. our little town in Acogdoches? And the answer is yeah. No. Not really. Yeah. So, kind of settled in.
0: Do you have a favorite place that you've lived internationally?
1: We get asked that question. I'm sure. A lot. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's a toughie. Yeah. Because every place has its unique uh, aspects. Athens always is high. Mm. For me, it was yeah. my first job overseas. the 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 Greek people are incredible. I learned a lot about Greek uh, Orthodoxy yeah. when I was living in Athens. Um, and it was just, I fell in love with the culture. Yeah. Um, but then Germany was off. We lived in the Bible Belt. Of, did you know Germany has a Bible Belt? <laughs> they do. Yeah, Southern Germany is the Bible Belt of Germany. It's that's very funny. heavily populated with evangelicals. Is there a uh, no, jesus no, church? Oh, my gosh. No. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Southern uh, the, the southern area of Germany, where Stuttgart, Stuttgart is the is the home of Mercedes and uh, Porsche, yeah. and uh, it's also called uh, the air region is called ba- uh, Baden-Württemberg, okay. uh, which is near Munich. Munich is Bavaria, and that area is very heavily evangelical, huh. and that was our. Um, for Germany? For Germ- <laughs> For Europe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for Germany, yeah. It was yeah. quite a lot. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, and I learned a lot about what Christianity could be yeah. from the German church.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: It was That's the German cool. church that taught me mm. know, that men's ministry thing. <laughs> I'm going to make a plug. Uh, I've been involved in men's ministry for a long time, and wow. it was because of the German church. Wow. Because Germans take men's ministry really seriously. Hmm. We struggle with it as Americans, Yeah. don't we? Yeah. We do struggle with it. Man,
0: I didn't even tell him to say that, y'all. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was a great plug. No, she didn't. She didn't. No. That's, <laughs> That's amazing. So, so after all of this, so you've landed here, um, and now you've been at this church in Nacogdoches for a while, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Okay. Um, after all of your experience, we know that the church is, is flawed, right? Even the best church out there is still mm-hmm. filled with, Folks like me, so it's flawed, right? Um, How have you been able to, even in the face of those flaws, trust the church after being in less than trustworthy religious experiences before that? What helps you trust um, the Christian church?
1: You're not really... I don't trust the church. I trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's fundamentally the bases. Yeah. And so what gives me trust of leaders, mm-hmm. because it's not a building, it's the people. And right. what, what makes me more trusting of people is that they trust the Lord yeah. and that they know the truth and believe it. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to trust people who Tell the truth and know the truth, as flawed as we all are we 've all had those issues yeah. sin issues in the life of a christian, very very common and mm-hmm. but that 's the growing process yeah. and uh, and and i've never really wavered from that, yeah. Yeah. wanting to continue to grow i just i'm i'm eager for that all the yeah. time
0: yeah and so that's that's amazing to say, even in this flawed individual, they have the spirit, and so they have truth, right, and to be able to contrast that to other religious groups that don't have that, um, and to be able to say, even amongst all of these flaws that I see, you have, you have the same spirit that I have, that's
1: I'm a very, incredible. truth is a big deal to me, because yeah. I've been around a lot of falsehood, yeah. and so, and we live in a, in a world of moral relativism, yeah. in a world where your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and we all know that that's that's the mantra of, yeah. of of today's society all around the world mm-hmm. and so it it's always when i have a conversation with my kids mm-hmm. and they tell me a story that they saw on the news or some story my first question is a lawyer it's because i'm a lawyer and because truth is a big deal to me yeah. it's like what are the i want to know the facts yeah. Yeah. because there's just so many there's so much communication out there yeah. that is not true it's mm-hmm. because People don't know the facts, or they don't yeah. care about the facts. Mm-hmm. So my my view is everything goes to the facts, yeah. and in Christianity, the facts are the Word of God. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Um, and so, like you said, you've been because of your experiences, you've been able to minister to folks that have had you know kind of diverse religious experiences mm-hmm. too. Um, what would you say to folks who are um, coming out of a situation where they were in a manipulative, even if it was a what they would call an evangelical church, but a manipulative religious experience or kind of coming out of religious trauma? Um, what would you say to them and how would you encourage them as they're pursuing truth?
1: Well, religious trauma is a very hard yeah. problem to, to deal with. And oh, I yes. can't speak that much for individuals that have suffered e- religious trauma in the evangelical world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Typically what you end up is individuals and a lot of young people unfortunately Um, as they as they get into their teen years and later they'll start to withdraw because something has happened Uh, my I the Lord opened up a door opportunity for us to host a college group in our house uh, for this past year which I'm a college professor but I had no interest in having a bunch of college kids in my house every (laughs) Thursday night and uh, but we did and it's been great and uh, I learned a phrase Maybe you've heard of this phrase. It's called church hurt.
0: Oh, yes. we just And talked about I, that. I never I heard listen.
1: that phrase, but church hurt yeah. was, is a, was a phrase I've heard. And uh, and I started to learn from these young people how we've hurt each other in the church. Yeah. And sometimes this has created trauma that, that's very difficult to overcome. Yeah. Um, my uh, conversations or interactions with individuals have primarily been individuals who are leaving Cult religions, yeah. or leaving Mormonism, or yeah. you know something, some, something completely different than mm-hmm. Christianity, yeah. and then trying to get them interested because a lot of individuals who who leave a non-Christian, in other words, it's not they're not believers. When they leave an organization that's religion, that wall is a wall, and they become yeah. very often become atheists. Yeah. And most Mormons, about eighty to ninety percent of Mormons who leave the Mormon Church, are become atheists, yeah. and that's the yeah. actual statistic.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, what is that? As you're kind of living with them and, and talking with them, what, how does that look to kind of encourage them towards this kind of new way of thinking, or you know, to to truth and to Christianity? And those well, things. you have how to you realize
1: think? that they don't know the truth, yeah. and so yeah. it always has to start with the simplicity of the gospel. Mm, yeah, and so, it is a simple thing. Yeah, It'll so it's, it's always, a, it begins with a trust relationship, right? Yeah. It's, you, you build a relationship. I'm not a street evangelist. That's yeah. not my spiritual gift. Yeah. I am a relationship evangelist. Yeah. So if I get to know somebody, and as I get to know them, I get to know their hurts a little bit. And then in conversation, I can bring in yeah. that there is a better way. And uh, that's, that does, has, that's where my brother, uh, my youngest brother, mm. uh, grew up mainstream. He was not a Scientology. He was too young to be a Scientologist. When my mom went off with the younger kids, she went back to the main Mormon church. And so my youngest sister and my youngest brother were mainstream LDS and grew up that way. Mm. My brother Paul was a missionary in Washington, D.C. for um, Cambodians. Wow. And so he spoke fluent, still speaks pretty good uh, Thai and Cambodian. And uh, he and I, because I was passing through Washington quite often in my Air Force career, would see each other against the rules. He's not supposed to actually see family as a Mormon missionary, but he broke the rules all the time. And we would visit and argue all the time. We had debates all the time because he he was absolutely sure of of what he believed and... uh, I knew mm-hmm. I was sure of yeah. the truth. Yeah. And eventually, over a number of years, mm-hmm. he became desperately unhappy. Mm-hmm. And he started asking me, because of this relationship, he said, what is it that you, what is it you have? Mm-hmm. Why, are you, why are you as happy as you are? Yeah. And the answer was always, relationship, relationship, relationship. Yeah. I always said that to him over and over again. Yeah. And ultimately... This went through two or three assignments. When we were in Tokyo, about two years into Tokyo, he and I were talking um, about the Book of Mormon and errors in the Book of Mormon. And it was right around that time period where uh, he made a final break. He made a final break. He said, that's it. I'm done with Mormonism. And he was off and running. And no, he's he's a deacon in a Baptist church in uh, Colorado, wow. right now. That's and amazing. He's doing great. he's doing pretty well. Oh so. my
0: goodness! Did your and I, I know that we're going to get to questions? Too. Did your father stay in Scientology for a long time after? My
1: my dad left really? Scientology because Scientology started to have a uh, there was a civil war in the 1970s. L. Ron Hubbard died. Okay. 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 And and um, when L. Ron Hubbard died, of course he didn't really die. Scientology's story yeah. was he didn't right. die. He okay. just he sort of just went off, and now yeah. he's. You know, somewhere else, and because he he didn't even take on a new body. When you die you, in Scientology, you took on a new body. Okay. In other words, you went and you were born again. Okay. born again in the wrong way. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and uh, he um, when he died, there was a civil war that happened within the church about who was going to take power.
0: Okay,
1: power is always. Yeah. Uh, and so a a guy named David Miscavige, who's still the who is still the head of Scientology to this day, okay. ended up taking power. And uh, my father was part of a group that was not David Miscavige's group, okay. the current. And so okay. he, till his dying day, believed in Scientology.
0: Yeah.
1: We don't call, Scientologists didn't call it doctrine, they called it tech. It was so many tech- terms.
0: Okay. Technology. It's such a oh, different vernacular. Yeah, it had okay. its own
1: dictionary. Yeah. It was technology. Scientology was called technology. That was the doctrine. And so okay. he loved this the tech of Scientology
0: Yeah,
1: uh, up until he died. He passed away in January of this okay. year. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. And um, he nice. was a seeker. He was one. He would, he would pick up books, and it was always the latest uh, spiritual this or mm. this. And, yeah. and I witnessed to him for many yeah. years. yeah. Um, but he just—he was—he became yeah. more and more and more resistant yeah, over the a, over the years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Can we thank uh, Stephen for sharing his story with us? <laughs> okay. This is—I was—I mean, truly one of the most interesting people. Um, and I know that I was joking with you before. We—I'm asking you all of these, you know, deeply personal things. And I realize this is the first time that we've sat down mm-hmm. together and mm-hmm. <laughs> spoken. Mm-hmm. And he said, y'all, and I, I kind of acknowledged that in an email, because I said, I've listened to a podcast that you were on, and now I want to have this conversation. He said, I need to be able to talk to Christians about these things. And um, that is so trusting of you to be willing to, to do that, to come here and share your story with us. And so we're just so grateful.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. Glad to do it. And sorry if I got too boring. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, I, could, I could I could, go, I could tell you all kinds of stories about serial killers and oh uh, multiple killings in Texas that occurred because of this polygamy groups. So I got all kinds of stories. Oh, my gosh. I could tell you about, yeah. <laughs> lots and lots of violent stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, Kim, yeah. Part two. Yeah. Part two, right.
1: <laughs> it's not a far drive, right? You can, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, we have a ton of questions, so we, I, I'm going to try to get through most of these, um, if you're willing to take of a few course. questions. I'm, um, I'm
1: here until you want to say,
0: kid out. <laughs> that should be, be careful. That, we might take <laughs> you up on that. Um, okay, so what do you think draws people into a cult? Um, what is attractive about those
1: groups to people? What, what really does it is lostness. And so individuals who are lost... Mm. And if you're a born and raised, one thing I've learned about coming into Christianity, at, at, at being, being saved at the age of 30, is for 30 years I was not saved, and for 30 years I've been saved. Mm-hmm. Right, so half my life I've lived one way, half another way. Mm-hmm. And when you are not saved, um, you're seeking, yeah. you're looking, you're always trying to find happiness somewhere. Yeah. And acceptance is a very powerful draw. Yeah. In other words, individuals who find acceptance by a group mm-hmm. will go into that group full force. Yeah. And so cults thrive on that. They yeah. will draw somebody in. You're one of us. Hare Krishna was that way. Yeah. All of the all of the cults are that way. Come and join us. You're our brother and sister. We'll take care of you. You're accepted here. Yeah. And and that's people need that. Mm-hmm. And so
0: They're kind of capitalizing on this need that we all have um, for folks that are in a sort of vulnerable place.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Indeed.
0: Um, Okay. So how do we as Christians engage in meaningful conversation um, with someone who, based on their experience, sees all religion as kind of a cult? Um, Or at least, at the very least, you know, not worthwhile as a, you know, we've talked about before religion as the opiate of the masses, right? You know, there's this mm-hmm. kind of idea as religion, um, be it a cult or, or something else like that. Um, how do we engage in conversation with folks that feel that way, that religion isn't
1: I think, merit? I think the first thing you have to do is you have to start understanding why the person thinks what they think. In mm-hmm. other words, you can always start to just evangelize, and there's nothing wrong with telling people the story of Jesus. That's a perfectly great thing to do. Um, but if you are if somebody has a wall and you say, "Well, let me tell you about Jesus, some people just say, "Get out of my face yeah. mm-hmm. and so it needs to start with finding out their perspective yeah. and usually asking questions is the way to do it so you 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 need to figure out why what is their background what yeah. what has caused them to think yeah. that religion is a bad thing or do they have a background in religious uh, a religious experience that that turned them off yeah. or is it is it what what is it that's creating this wall yeah. and then you try to separate religion from christianity mm-hmm. that's one thing i always do is try to make people understand that christianity is not religion yeah. it's relationship yeah. mm-hmm. and that's that's so key yeah. relationship
0: yeah Because that's that's good, because we've... And when Byron comes in two weeks, he'll be so glad that you said that our missions minister is always talking about, you know, evangelism is a relational thing, Indeed. Mm -hmm. And we often can treat evangelism... um, If we're evangelizing in the same way that someone is going door-to-door trying to get you to vote for so-and-so, right, we're probably doing something a little bit wrong, right? We're not starting from that relational space, and so that is... That's incredible to to hear that from you, to say relationships and understanding where they're coming from and having a little bit of curiosity towards that, that individual's experience. That's, that's,
1: awesome. that's the way it's always worked with me. And anybody I've ever um, been able to bring to the Lord has always been a long process through relationship. Yeah. It's never been something quick, and my own experience was a long process through relationship. Yeah. And and that seems to be a needed method.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So you said before um, you are as happy as one who doesn't know the Lord can be. Um, And I think I understand. It says when we see people who seem very successful and enjoying life without knowing God, um, what are we missing? Or I guess it seems like they're as happy as as we are with knowing God, and they don't know the Lord. Um, I guess what are we missing? we see
1: them well everybody's different but i think what you're missing is the actual truth Mm -hmm. that they're not as happy as as they say or they have this outward appearance Mm -hmm. because underneath the facade Mm -hmm. of the happiness facade is greed Mm -hmm. uh weakness fear fear of failure fear of uh uh, what people other people will think of you mm-hmm. um, the drive to be materialistic, yeah. but underneath it all i don 't believe people yeah. are happy yeah. when I say I was as happy as you could be, i mean yeah. i wasn 't starving to death right. i wasn 't in a war zone yeah. i you know i didn't i didn't have terrible diseases like yeah. in and i I had a career and I was as happy as I could be because I was coming out of yeah. terrible childhood experiences and that was it. Coming out of a terrible experience into something like a career yeah. and then, and, then and, 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 and having some success for me yeah. initially was kind of a happy place mm-hmm. until it wasn't. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's what... You know, right now I'm studying Ecclesiastes, and that's exactly what Solomon talks about, right? He kind of, Solomon kind of does this experiment with himself, right? And he, he says, you know, everything is meaningless. I've I've tried all these things. I've tried intellectualism, right? I've tried to, to learn all these things. That, you know, came back empty. I tried hedonism and just giving my, you know, my spirit and my body whatever it wanted. That came back meaningless, and, right? And then finally he says, I tried... You know, basically success and and material things and, and wealth, and that came back empty too, right? And we know that if they don't have Christ, even if it, because I'm sure Solomon enjoyed some of those days, right, while he was pursuing those things, but at the end of the day, we know that that that's unfulfilling, right? Even if there's a few happy days there in between, right? And that's well, what, and
1: individuals don't yeah. know what they don't know. Yeah, ultimately. If they don't know that there is a better way, that better way is the Lord, Jesus Christ, and nobody tells them about it, Mm -hmm. and then they don't know that there's an actual avenue. And they may think, well, this is as good, I'm happy, it's as good as it gets.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the idea of being, this is as good as it gets, is so sad, but where so many people are.
1: Well, and yeah. and and yeah. and then it's it's as good as it gets. But I'm going to continue to strive to get yeah. more, to get right. more, to get more.
0: Right? Yeah, man.
1: Because that will make me happier. Yeah,
0: man. Yeah. This is so good. Um, this is a good question. Do you see any vulnerabilities in the Christian church that could lead to cult-like behavior? It's um, a really
1: good question. Yeah, I've studied Christian denominations for a long time, uh, mainly because I'm. Really interested in truth, and there are there's definitely some problems with some of the denominations doctrinally, in my yeah. view. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I have seen that always makes me nervous in Christianity is when individuals become very focused on one particular area, yeah. and they ignore other areas, mm-hmm. and that was very. Cultish-like yeah. behavior that I saw in 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 Mormonism and in Scientology was mm-hmm. this this singular focus. Yeah. So I get very cautious and try to talk to people. If okay, so yes, you love eschatology, mm. yeah. okay, mm-hmm. and 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 it's good. We we all need to learn about eschatology. But yeah. if eschatology is all, and that becomes something in Christianity becomes the Passcode to prove if you're truly a Christian. Yeah, that's right. Really good. You you believe this way, or you're not a Christian. You believe this way, or you're not a Christian. Yeah. And, and and you you end up creating these doctrines that are not true. Yeah. And that's it starts true. to to create division within the church. Mm-hmm. And people who are not believers see that. Yeah. And that's not a good thing for our uh, for the church invisible for yeah. sure. Yeah,
0: that's good because we we already have the. The, um, we know that Christ crucified and resurrected is, you know, the end-all be-all of our faith, right? And we've talked about that when we say Jesus and, right? And we, you know, say, yes, Christ crucified and, and we kind of add something to that. Um, that's dangerous territory, yeah.
1: Well, and Mormonism, it, Mormonism is a, all religions are works religions. Yeah. Every religion is a works religion except for true Christianity, mm-hmm in one way or another. And, um, and I learned that full well with Mormonism because Mormonism is the, the phrase in the Book of Mormon that the Mormon will quote to you, the Mormon missionary will quote to you, is um, that uh, you are saved after all you can do. Hmm. And that's the actual phrase out of the Book of Mormon. You are saved after all you can do. In other words, a Mormon would explain it that, uh, that um, your, your faith is a, is a jar and through your works and your good deeds, you put sand in the jar. And the jar becomes filled up. And then God will fill in mm-hmm. the water. In other words, water is poured in and he fills the gaps in. And that's salvation huh. in okay. Mormon, in the Mormon tradition. I've never
0: heard that explained that way before. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Huh. Um, okay, sorry, And there's a few more. <laughs> no problem. Let's see. Um, what were or are still the main scriptures that you go to that have helped your Christian g- growth and guidance as you've... Um, faith? What
1: scriptures do you for God you? works all things out for good. Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. that's one I, I, uh, I think about a lot. Um, uh, I My favorite passage uh, in the Bible is Jeremiah uh, 9.23. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of... of Uh, how God, what he values. Mm -hmm. It's uh, let the rich man not boast of his riches. Let the wise man not boast of his wisdom. Let the Mm -hmm. strong man not boast of his strength, but let him who boasts, boast in me that he knows me. Mm -hmm. I am the Lord who exercises justice, kindness, and righteousness, for in this I delight. Mm -hmm. So I focus on that. I say justice, kindness, righteousness. He delights in that. And so, yes, he's righteous and he's just, but I focus a lot on the kind part. Yeah. Being kind mm-hmm. is so important for a Christian. Yeah. God delights in being kind, yeah. so we need to be kind. Yeah. So. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, there's there's two left here, and I want to end with the second-to-last one. So why do Mormons say or believe that they are also Christians? Because we've, we've heard that, right, as if we're kind of cousins. <laughs> it's kind of how... Mormonism and Christianity are presented sometimes.
1: That that really started in the 1970s. uh, Mormons never believed they were Christians. And um, essentially, there's, there's all kinds of Mormon doctrine that essentially, starting with Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, the LDS Church, and on upwards through Brigham Young and all of the other presidents where doctrine has been created saying that the Mormon church is the one true church. And everything else is the den of Satan. It's been put in a very uh, pejorative way. Mm. Um, Everyone who's not a Mormon is basically, Mm. essentially lost. And so Christianity, or the idea that Mormons were Christians, came into being in the 1970s. This started to happen because we started to have more availability of information. Mm. And Mormons began to have access to information about what their own church believes. Most Mormons have no idea what yes. their own history is. They really don't.
0: Same with evangelicals, right? <laughs> That's what we've talked a lot about is we have, we have a hard time with church history sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We have short memory. Yeah, yeah.
1: and so um, when the internet came out then young Mormons be able, be, started to be able to see historical documents in Mormonism and, and it's not a pretty thing. And so young people are fleeing the Mormon church, right? And they're bleeding. Mormons, uh, the Mormon church is bleeding their young yeah, people out. Yeah. Um, and so making Mormonism Christian is a way to, to gain acceptance. Okay. Um, and that's the key. The key yeah. is Mormons, the Mormon church wants to be accepted as, yeah. as a mainstream yeah. Um, Christian religion,
0: yeah, because the LDS proper, there there are some similarities, right? And I get how that can be kind of construed as we're we're a part of this Christian community because there's, there's there's enough almo- similarities yeah, to kind of make that a blurry There's line. almost
1: no similarities between Mormonism yeah. other than other than um, uh, the word Jesus, mm. okay? Because it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right. yeah. and so Mormons believe the word Jesus, but mm-hmm. they don't believe that Jesus is who we believe Jesus mm. is. Mm. In Mormonism, God was a man mm. who became a God. Mm. And there were gods before God, and there are many other gods. And Jesus is a created being, mm. and he's the physical son of God through okay. sexual union with another okay. with, a, with a spiritual woman. Okay. And therefore, Jesus is the God, but only yeah. the God of this world. Okay. Not the God okay. of many other worlds. So there's so enough... I could go on yeah. and on about this stuff. No, no, that's but yes, that's, there's not a lot of similarity. Yeah,
0: but there's enough similar language to make it yes. construed uh, yes, as... Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that's so interesting.
1: You have to define your words. Yeah. If you're going to witness to yeah. a Mormon, you have to define words. Because yeah. you okay. say one word and they think it means something. Uh, and you th- you know it means something else. Yeah,
0: okay, that's interesting. Um. Okay, and so finally, um, what is one of the greatest successes or joys in your life in the past and now? Um, as when you think back to joys or successes in life, um, what is one of the greatest things for you?
1: Well, obviously, there for me, the salvation experience yeah. was, was, was great, but yeah. it was a great joy, but... Um, Meeting this young lady over here out of the blue, kind of on this blind on this blind date, yeah. kind of set up, <laughs> and then after ten years, um, having two wonderful children who've, yeah. who who uh, are are quite successful and doing yeah. well, that's yeah. that that's that's a real joy. Yeah. And then having a church family, yeah. wherever we go, we we can always have family. Yeah. Um, No matter where you go, you can find brothers and sisters if you just look. That's good. Yeah. That's
0: good. Yeah. Okay. We have officially kept you a very long time. But can we, again, thank uh, Stephen and Lori for...